All right, we are finishing a section of Exodus this morning. Um, back in chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. And then at the end of chapter 20, starting in chapter 20, verse 22, and going through 23, uh, verse 19, is what is called the Book of the Covenant. It's the explanation or the uh, expansion of the law. It's actually kind of a Cliff Notes version, because if you go to Deuteronomy or to um, Leviticus, you'll find that God expands it even further. There's more instruction. Okay, little, uh, little music to uh, make the morning go better. Okay, um, so, um, but, but this is kind of a Cliff Notes version. And so God says, thou shalt not kill. Well, what does that mean? Well, we find out that there's intentional killing and non-intentional killing and killing when you aren't sure what it is and something where you're mad and somebody gets hurt. And, and all of those laws are in there. Um, and uh, laws about justice and, and all sorts of things, but they all flesh out the Ten Commandments. And we're finishing that this morning. Um, to be honest, that was the part of Exodus that kind of scared me was the Book of the Covenant because it's laws that don't apply directly to us that we're studying. And so um, we had a two-week inter interim there where uh, David Morris spoke and he talked about how the law informs us about our salvation. It, it um, condemns if you're under the law. It teaches us about our God and his character and it, um, it sheds light on what we believe in the New Testament. It, it fills that all out. And so even though the law does not apply to us directly, we still benefit from it. And hopefully you have benefited as we've gone, as we've gone through it. We are at the last section, and the last section is laws about festivals and Sabbaths, is what it says in my book, in other, my Bible. In other words, the things that God says you will remember to observe these days or these times. And it's interesting because they don't apply to us. We don't celebrate uh, the Passover. I doubt if any of you have kept the celebration of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, where you eat unleavened bread for an entire week. Um, that doesn't sound like a feast to me, but it was to them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, anybody ever gone out for a week and camped in your backyard in a tent to celebrate the Feast of Weeks? No? Um, and then there's a Feast of the Harvest at the end as well, or the Feast of Ingathering. Um, and those feasts we don't celebrate anymore. We also have the Sabbath, which we've talked about, as mentioned, as is the sabbatical year. And most of those things we don't observe anymore. So the question is, what do we learn from this passage? And I think there's a lot to learn from this passage on, on the festival. So we are in Exodus chapter 23, starting at verse 10. And we're going to read down through verse 19. It says, for six years you shall, show, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. 
Six days you shall do no work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. Your, uh, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before me or before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The, be the best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring into the house of God, the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So uh, the last law there is kind of a strange one, but um, that is the conclusion then of the book of the covenant. Um, I think what is happening in here is that the nation of Israel is not a typical nation. And what God is doing is causing their attention to be placed upon him and causing them to have things that draw them together as a people. I think this passage deals with unifying the nation. Um, remember, this is not a nation like the United States or France, or any other nation that we would think of as a nation. Um, it's a, it's a, a tribal nation, right? You have the 12 tribes, actually there's 13, but there's the 12, we think of the 12 tribes. Um, and the tribes were made up of clans, and the clans are made up of families. Um, who are you most loyal to? Your family. And then you're loyal to your clan. And then to your tribe. And finally, lastly, you're loyal to the nation of Israel. You remember when they crossed over the Jordan? Some of the tribes stayed on the other side of the Jordan, called the Transjordanian tribes. Manasseh and part of one other tribe. And I forget which one now, but it doesn't matter. Was that? Oh, it was Reuben and Gad. Okay, thank you, Adrian. Good thing we have a Bible scholar in here who knows this. Um, Reuben and Gad are on the other side of the Jordan and they build a big altar. What looks like an altar to the people of Israel and the people of Israel come and they're gonna destroy Gad and Reuben. They're gonna wipe them off the face of the earth because they have built an altar to a false God. And Gad and Reuben say, we, we didn't build a false altar. We just wanted to put a pile of stones here so that our children remember that we're connected. This is a pile of remembrance so that our children will know that we belong to Israel. They were worried about that. There's another time where they all gather together to destroy one of the tribes of Israel. Um, and, and something has to pull this nation together. And what pulls them together is the worship of their God and then the fact that they celebrate together. They have times of the year where they are supposed to celebrate together. So. That's why it's kind of interesting, right in the middle of this, in verse 18, excuse me, verse 13, 
It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Um, it, one of the unifying themes here is our focus is on Jehovah God. Now, keep in mind as well that the Israelites at this point are not truly monotheistic. Okay? You say, well, wait a minute, they only have one God. But I guarantee you, most of the people hearing this believe that there were many, many gods. They are not monotheistic the way you and I are. How many of you believe there's another God? No hands go up. That's good. All right. Otherwise, we'd be concerned. But you see, you could worship one God without and still believe that there were many other gods. And the Israelites are coming out of a culture where it is so thoroughly polytheistic. They, they believe there are other gods. They just think that their God is the strongest or the best. And, they, and, and God is trying to draw them back. It's not until after the Babylonian captivity that they come back and they are fiercely monotheistic people. I don't know what happened in the Babylonian captivity, but they come back um, convinced that there is just one God and that God is Jehovah. And that, that's when they become truly monotheistic. At this point, they're gonna go into another land. There's other gods there. Why shouldn't I worship those other gods? Well, God starts to put rules in a, into effect. And one of them is don't even say the name of another God. Don't even mention them. Don't, in passing, talk about the festival of Moloch or Ashtoreth or, or uh, the Baals that they worship. Don't even mention it. Your focus, your attention is on me. And at the end, it says, you shall not boil a young kid in its mother's milk, which leads me to ask, why would you want to do that? But it um, seems like you would have to, I, I don't know, Brent probably knows how much milk, how long would it take to milk a goat to get enough milk to boil a kid? Not long, okay, all right. So I didn't know how much milk they produced, but um, so, what was that? <laughs> Anyways, uh, not to do that, well, why not? Well, fortunately, we have archaeologists who go and they study ancient cultures, and this was one of their rituals in their false worship, was boiling a kid in its mother's milk. So in a sense, it's, it's stay away from their religions. Don't even mention them, but I'm going to substitute it with something else. What am I going to substitute it with? Well, things that we as a nation do that make us peculiar and that bind us together and focus our attention on the Lord God. So we start with the sabbatical year. That's unusual. Um, do we do that? George, you let your fields lay fallow one out of seven? Can't afford it. Okay. Uh, they probably would have said the same thing, right? Yeah, but you're still working the land at that point. So they start out and they say for six, or God says for six years, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. So this is, um, sounds like it's mostly the, the land that you, would, um, that you would seed, although it goes on to talk about vineyards as well. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat 
and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. And I assume with all of your fields. Now, uh, that takes a lot of faith, right? Because what are they expecting God to be able to do? Provide for them. And in fact, there's another passage where he says, I will give you so much on the sixth year that you will be able to go through the seventh and then part of the eighth. So God says, I'll provide. You, you don't have to work the land. Um, so there's a faith issue here. And I, I like George's comment, I can't afford it. We couldn't afford to do that. But remember, these are people who live hand to mouth. This isn't, I might lose the land, this is, I might die. <laughs> there might not be enough food for me and my family to go through and God says, doesn't matter, leave it and don't sow or plant one year out of seven. That's pretty amazing. Now, um, there's a second part to this, and that is that the reason for this, again, reveals the heart of God for those who are in need, for the poor, for the needy, which we all are, but especially the poor in the land, because the reason for this is because of the poor, right? Because he says, um, you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. And same thing with your field and your, your vineyard and your olive orchard. Um, I always assumed that the sabbatical year was the entire land of Israel lay fallow. But I think, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I tried to look it up and nobody knows about this. I wonder if you had 140 acres if you didn't let 20 go fallow every year. Because it, it, it's kind of hard for poor people to survive if the entire land is being worked for six years and then the seventh year they can, they can eat, right? I mean, the point was that the poor would have something to eat. Um, let me ask a question, but, but it reveals the heart of God. There's gonna be people out there who are in, in need. They can go into your field that part of the field that you're not working and they can eat whatever they want to. It's for the people. Um, question for you, did Israel obey the sabbatical year? Never, they never did. They did not have faith in God or the ability to obey. And by the way, it would be a hard thing to do. You know what, when you get that big six year crop, I know how farmers think, next year will be even better, <laughs> right? That we had a great year this year, we're on a roll. Seventh year, we're gonna bring in even more. They never once did this. In fact, God says that the reason for 70 years of captivity in Babylon was the people had gone 490 years without a sabbatical year. And God takes them and says, I'm gonna put you into captivity in Babylon so that the land will lay fallow for 70 years. God reclaims that. He says, I will have the land rest for 70 years. And do you remember who was left in the land when for 70 years the people were taken to Babylon? They left the poor. They took everybody who was important, everybody who had anything, and they left the poor in the land. And for 70 years, the poor in the land were provided for by the land. Um, this, uh, there's a principle there 
When God asks us for something, he does get it, whether we do it willingly or not. Um, he, if God asks us to do that and the blessings will come, then we should, uh, we should do it willingly. Um, the second part of this is the uh, Sabbath once a week. Six days you shall do work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Now, we've talked a lot about the Sabbath, and I really want to get to the feasts and the festivals, but the principle of the Sabbath, that one's in the Ten Commandments, but when we get to Colossians, and we get to Paul's teaching that we're no longer under the law, and in Colossians, Paul says, let no one judge you in regard to festival or feast day or Sabbath. Um, those are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there's always going to be an argument among Christian people. How much do we obey the Sabbath? Do we set aside Sunday as a day of rest and not work at all on that day? And if we argue about that too much, we're missing the main point. Um, go over to, to Matthew uh, chapter and I know John Paul talked about this a couple of months ago, and we've talked about it uh, prior, and David even mentioned it. Um, go to Matthew chapter um, 12. <clears throat> um, it says in verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to plug heads of grain and to eat, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law and how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Um, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, the guiltless. But the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and later on, Jesus will say the Sabbath was not made, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. If you go back to the passage that we're looking at, what's the purpose of the Sabbath? physical rest. We don't want your animals working. We don't want your servant working. We don't want you working on the Sabbath. Isn't there the same faith principle at work here? We're kind of used to taking a day off. In fact, lots of us are used to taking two days off. But when you hit the Sabbath and God says, one day you can't work, you're trusting God to provide for you on the day that you're not, that you're not working. Um, it's for the people to rest. Um, go back now that you're still in Matthew, I hope. I want you to back up to um, chapter 11, which comes right before that, of course. Um, in verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then I think to illustrate the principle, he walks through the grain field and picks. Uh, the, the point of the Sabbath, the spiritual significance of the Sabbath is that we need rest for our souls. It isn't just physical rest that's important, it's rest for our souls. We, we are burdened with sin. And when we come to Jesus, he gives us rest. He removes that burden. Take my yoke, leave the old yoke, the yoke of sin. Uh, we are constantly feeling like we need to uh, be good enough for God. That's what the whole legalism of the law was. Uh, we are, we are, um, we have Christ's righteousness and we no longer have to work for our salvation. The principle of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, whether you want to take a day off every week and say that you're doing it, I think it's a great principle. Um, I have done that my whole life, but there was time where I was somewhat confused about it. Um, I try not to work at all on Sunday. Okay, one day off. It's a great principle. But I'm not to judge people who don't. Um, and, and so that's the principle of the Sabbath. Now, I know we've gone through that before. I really wanted to get to the feast. Any comments, though, on the Sabbath before we, before we move forward? But you see how both of these will draw the people to God if they obey them? You're putting your faith in God. You're trusting in him. And you're also seeing his goodness. He cares about the poor. He cares about you. He wants you to rest. Not only does he care about you, he cares about your servants. He wants everybody to rest. Darla. Yeah, um, I, I may have told this story before, but uh, the, um, you all know the Colony Covenant Church out on Mountain View in Zediger, and then there's the Covenant Church just up the street here. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the Covenant Church here in Kingsburg is a church plant from the Colony Covenant Church. Um, <coughs> and what happened was, if I, the story was told to me correctly, all the people from the city were still driving, once they'd moved into the city, were still mo driving out to the country. This was before cars, because that church is about 120 years old. And, and that meant that your animals had to, to take you all the way out, five miles there and five miles back. And the people actually used this principle and said, it's not right. Our, our animals need a day of rest, and they started a church here in, in town. Um, and I think that's a good application of the principle, but, but to say, if you don't do that, then you are somehow not obeying God would be a different issue. But the heart of God is that he wants us to rest and he cares about, cares about us and he cares about the poor. So let's go on to the festivals, the feasts. Oh, Bernie. Oh, the, thing with the, the, the Pharisees, they turned something that was made to be rest or relief from stress into a source of stress. No longer is it rest, it's now some, uh, something to be conformed and complied to. Yeah, exactly. And you guys were pointing at, at 
Looked like all of a sudden, okay, up here. All right. All right, let's go on to the three feasts. It says, three times you shall keep a feast to me. There's actually four things that they're supposed to remember. And the first one is the Passover. But associated with the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there's the Feast of um, the First Fruits. And then there is the Feast of the Ingathering. So three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of which you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before me. Talk about national unification. What's going to happen three times a year, theoretically, is all the men. And by the way, they might bring families with them. We know that Jesus was brought to the temple with his mother. They walked, came to the temple. But the men were required to be there three times a year. That's going to unify this nation around that, the fact that they're all coming together. In fact, do you remember when um, Jeroboam rebels against Rehoboam? Uh, so it's Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then Rehoboam, uh, a complete fool allows the kingdom to be split, and Jeroboam takes the ten tribes. What's the first thing Jeroboam does? Yeah, in Dan and Bethel, he sets up a golden calf, kind of interesting, and the people are to worship that golden calf. Why does he do that? Because so they don't go back to Jerusalem. Because if they go back to Jerusalem, after a while they're going to say, why are we going to Jerusalem when we're at war with Jerusalem? Uh, the, the center of their, their religious, their, their life was in Jerusalem, their spiritual life. And so now the first thing he did was say, we're not going there to worship anymore. And then the nation is split apart. The people are always coming back to Jerusalem or wherever the tabernacle is. At this point, it's not Jerusalem. And the three feasts are that first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let me put this up here. We've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they eat unleavened bread for seven days. And then we have the Feast of the First Fruits. And then we have the Feast of the Harvest. Okay. Um, let me just say something here before we jump into the feasts. Um, those would be feasts that an agricultural society would celebrate. Something is important is happening at each one of those points. At the beginning, you're about to go out and plant. We, we, we have a remembrance of that. You have the first fruits, the very first grains that come in. That's an exciting time. That means the crop is coming in. And we always have a harvest. We still have a harvest feast, right? Kingsburg. I was at the Covenant Church for a long time. They had a harvest feast. We come to Grace, we have a harvest feast. Um, if you're down in Orange County, they don't have harvest feasts. I'll just tell you. They, they have no concept that there even is such a thing as a harvest. They think food comes from stores. They don't know about growing it somewhere. Um, so they don't have a harvest feast. I've never seen that before. Um, an agricultural society that runs on this sort of timetable will have these feasts. And so what I would say is this, I think it's important for us to celebrate together. 
um, celebrating together unifies. Um, churches should have times of celebration. The nation that you're in should have times of celebration. Ours kind of is Thanksgiving and Super Bowl, I think, and maybe Fourth of July, right? Those are our feasts. Those unify our nation in some way. Uh, families that don't celebrate together tend to just scatter, right? There's nothing that holds them to, together. Uh, the church should celebrate together. God is a God who enjoys us feasting. He wants us feasting. He wants times of celebration. And if we ignore those, we ignore them at our peril. Um, secondly, um, all of these feasts would have been celebrated probably by the nations around them. But God takes and redeems them for himself. He takes something that would have been celebrated. You would have always had a feast of the harvest, but they would have been celebrating to their fertility gods probably. There would have been sacrifices at the beginning. That they wouldn't have celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would have gone out and sacrificed to the fertility gods or goddesses usually. And at the first fruits and at the harvest, there would have been, been a, a celebration of these other gods for having done what they've done. God takes those feasts and he redeems them for himself. He imbues them with new meaning. And, and I say that because um, sometimes I think we're not aware of that. Um, I know people who get really hot and bothered that there are some pagan uh, traditions at Christmas and at Easter. Uh, we had a family at our church that uh, growing up who did not celebrate Christmas because Christmas had roots in the Saturnalia and in some other things. They did nothing on Christmas. Um, and I, I, I know that because I was in a speech class and this gal gave a speech. The speech was, what do you do on Christmas? And she explained her family's philosophy. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, all of them had pagan roots. And so they didn't celebrate them. And she got done with that speech. I just remember the teacher saying, that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. And it was sad. But, but if we say the origin of something has to be absolutely pure or we don't have anything to do with it, we're probably gonna find ourselves always being able to find some part of it that's impure. Um, these feasts, they could have done that. Somebody could have come back and said, well, you know, they used to sacrifice, to so, so we're not gonna celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No, God takes that feast and turns around and points it toward himself. Um, when we celebrate Christmas, I couldn't care less about mistletoe or the Christmas tree. Who are we thinking about? Jesus Christ. When we celebrate Easter, I, I, I don't care about the Easter bunny. I like the chocolate. Flowers are pretty, but what are we thinking about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that, that's what's taking place, Rod. God giving tolerance to that, 
to a certain extent, he's also going to apply that same tolerance to the festival. I mean, they're, they're meaning that he's going to he's going to take away the the idea that other gods are in those festivals, but yet those other gods still have some kind of uh, association. Yeah, they might be there in the roots of it, yeah. Certainly God doesn't believe there's other gods, but no, you're right the way that. There's tolerance built in here. In yeah. I mean, okay, I'll have to think about that. What's that? I'll have to think about that, but... Um, Anything that you put ahead of our Lord is a God. Yes. Because he's a jealous God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you made the statement that... No, I, I know what you're saying. There, yeah. Came back from Babylon. How come, you know, he he regarded uh, a lot of different sins far, you know, he demonstrated great judgment in other sins. He didn't necessarily demonstrate the same judgment here. Or I don't remember What on on, on other, gods. other gods? You know what? We're going to get sidetracked, and I don't want to. <laughs> Because um, I want to get through this. And same thing, Bernie. Um, now, let's talk about the festivals. Um, unleavened bread is associated with Passover. Passover isn't the feast that they're celebrating. But we've talked about this. The uh, Passover remembers them leaving uh, Egypt, freedom from slavery. Um, and then they ate unleavened bread for seven days. Why did they eat unleavened bread for seven days? Be remember that when God delivers, he delivers powerfully and quickly. And they had to leave so quick that the bread didn't rise. That's why. Okay. But we go to the New Testament and this is uh, given new meaning. The Passover isn't just the redemption of your firstborn. This is redemption of all mankind. That's why I said we're all firstborn. Uh, Christ is our Passover lamb. And... We are the ones who are passed over. And by that, I don't mean not taken. I mean, our sins are passed over. We are redeemed, passed over. Now it looks like Avex. Okay, oops, <laughs> over. And then the unleavened bread becomes not the fact that God did that quickly, but unleavened bread becomes the sign for sin, that we are to be, we were redeemed to live lives that are free from sin. So the unleavened bread refers to freedom from sin. All right, now, the first fruits has another name in the uh, Bible. There's actually two other names for the feast of the first fruits. It's called the Feast of Weeks. And you can go to Leviticus and find this, or it's called the Feast of Booths. Well, that's strange. Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Weeks was because it took place seven weeks after Passover. Seven weeks and one day. So it's seven weeks after. Um, what's seven times seven? Plus one is 50. So in the New Testament, this is called Pentecost. Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. Pentecost takes place 50 days after Christ is crucified, okay? 
It's called the Feast of Booths because later on uh, the people of Israel remembered it um, and it had took on a different sort of meaning that it remembered the time that they were in um, the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness. So they actually go out and they build booths and they sleep in them. I remember I had a Jewish man that I worked with. He wasn't a particularly religious Jewish man. Actually, I worked with two Jewish men, um, one who was, as a, uh, he was an atheist, but he always celebrated the Passover. Interesting. And then the other one was a little bit more religious, but one day he came in and he looked um, just a little um, tired. And I said, you need to get more sleep. And he said, well, the problem is I'm sleeping in the backyard. So, wow, I've heard of sleeping on the couch, but sleeping in the backyard. So no, the whole family, he goes, we're celebrating the Feast of Booths. uh, 4,000 years later, they live, they actually go and they build a shelter, put up sticks and put stuff across the top of it and they sleep outside for a week to remember that they were aliens and strangers in the land, not aliens and strangers, they were um, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then we have the Feast of the Harvest, which is also known as the Feast of the Ingathering. It's here, but Feast of the Harvest, Feast of the Ingathering. All right, now, just a quick question. We don't have time to look up the verse, but if you go to Nehemiah, you'll find the answer. Did they celebrate all these feasts on a regular basis? They didn't, sadly. Uh, let's, let's just jump there. Go to Nehemiah chapter 8. I want you to see this. Nehemiah chapter 8. <coughs> and uh, verse 17. It says, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the day of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. So they went 490 plus the 70 years, 540 years, well, after Moses, but about 500 years, they never kept the Feast of Booths, never did this. So these feasts did not get celebrated. We know there were times where they didn't celebrate the Passover. Uh, When they came back from captivity, they had not celebrated the Passover. All right, but let's put some some meaning into this. Does this mean anything that 50 days after? What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit falls, but the church is born. That early church, that that day of Pentecost, that's the first fruits. Um, God is bringing in a harvest, and the harvest is those who believe. And so the feast of harvest is yet to happen. The feast of the harvest of the ingathering takes place at the end of the age. This is when God gathers in all of the saints, all that he's redeemed. What started at Passover uh, for us Christ is our Passover, we have freedom from sin. At Pentecost, the church began, and at harvest, the church is called back home. And so the the picture here is of not just Israel's deliverance, but the church itself. Christ died, and he buys back a people for himself. They are expected to live lives that are, are dedicated to him and pure. At the Pentecost, he began the process of pulling the people to himself or drawing them to himself. And at the harvest, it is 
finished. So if there's any application here at all, it's that we are in this period of time right here, right? We're right in here. We're somewhere between the first fruits and the harvest. Um, what does Jesus say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth workers. The Great Commission is to be a part of the, the harvest. Jesus looking out, the fields are, are white. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Um, our purpose here is to help bring in the harvest. It's to share the gospel. It's to, it's to present it to other people. We are here for a reason. We are part of the harvest, but we are involved with the harvest as well. And the second part of it is more terrifying. If you're not part of the harvest, there's another parable, then you're one of the weeds, right? At the end of the age, the harvest is brought in, but the weeds are separated out. And so the application of all of these feasts really come down to this. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Are you, are you going to be one of those who is part of the harvest? Or are you going to be a weed that is, is separated him from him for all eternity and, and burned in the fire? So uh, those, those feasts meant something to them, but they mean a whole lot more to us. We look back on it and we see God's plan of salvation. By the way, there are some other feasts as well that are mentioned later. There's Feast of Trumpets. There's the Feast of uh, the Day of Atonement and so on. There's other ones, but those get mentioned later. And a lot of them, we think, refer to times past this. But this is the outline of salvation. By the way, somebody also mentioned that if we look at this as a picture of salvation, that salvation gets richer and richer as we go. We start out feasting on unleavened bread, which like I said, doesn't do it for me. <laughs> I don't like unleavened bread a whole lot. Then we have the first fruits, but eventually the entire harvest comes in and we have this abundant feast that we're feasting on. Uh, God's salvation for us becomes richer and richer as we go. So those are the feasts. And then that puts us where now we'll go back to kind of a narrative portion of, of Exodus. God talking about conquering the land, but um, hopefully that gives you a different feeling for those, those feasts. They're not random. God doesn't just take them. He, he puts meaning into them, and then that meaning becomes more profound as we move into the New Testament and realize that this refers to Christ and his church. It's not just a, a bunch of farmers bringing their fruit in. It's God bringing his harvest in. Um, all right, any comments or questions before we... And Adrian. I think the Feast of Booths is also uh, known as Feast of Lights, and I think that that was the lights were to commemorate the solar fire. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the days of the feast. It's the great day of the feast where they have the they 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 do this the the festival of the lights, I believe. But I, I think you're right, yeah. Um, anybody else, any other comments before we go on? Okay, let's go ahead and pray.